0: Welcome to the Dixie Polis Podcast. My name is Lucas. And I'm Travis. We're Southern men, de the South. So last time we were in Parental Responsibilities, written by Robert Louis Dabney. We covered the introduction and the first two sections of this sermon, which were The Nature of Parental Relationship, and the authority of parents. These two sections were establishing how the parent relates to the child. He starts with Adam in the Garden of Eden, falling, the fall, and he generated children, which were in his image. Through Adam, through us, our children both inherit an immortal soul but also our own sins in the second portion he establishes the totality of a parent's authority over his child and talks about some of the practical effects of a father and a mother on their children how the way in which they were raised and the principles by which they were raised affects them later on in life and carries over. So now we're in the affections of the parents towards the children. And he actually ended the last section on this talking about Napoleon who had stomach cancer and sent his own doctor overseas from where he was exiled to his child so that his child would not get stomach cancer. And... He draws this parallel between parents who care so dearly for their children's temporal problems, but they have no care for their children's spiritual problems. And he essentially calls them hypocrites, especially if they're Christians. And from that, we come to the affections of the parents. Travis, do you have anything you wanted to add to that?
1: Um. So, so the
0: affections
1: of the parents seems to be a a kind of a check and balance. That he argues that it's more of a check and balance because earlier he's he talked about the absolute authority of the parents and how they had this this very um vast power over these these little immortal souls, and that not even a monarch, not even an imperial monarch such as the Russian one, had the kind of the, the kind of sway over his country that these parents have over these children. So it's, it seems that Dabney now goes into arguing on what is the checks and balances so that parents don't completely ruin uh, these children. And, and it seems to be the affection of the parent, namely the mother's affection, how, how the mother you know loves and coddles the, the young children, especially when they're really little, uh, so that nothing so that the world doesn't harm them and even even with a good father you know the the father even not even a not so good father will still try to make that child safe in the world in fact very few fathers that i can see today actually wish ill upon their children they actually want to harbor this this area of safe they actually want to create this safe space for the child
0: right and he actually in this quote I'm going to bring up here. He draws a parallel between the Father and God himself. So the Father, in acting in his role as a Father, is acting in a kind of role that God acts towards us. And he quotes Luke 11 in this quote. He says God has kept alive this remnant of the estate of paradise like the one entirely fresh oasis in the desert of depravity. He preserves it apparently that there may be a spot whence can flow forth the water of life for dying humanity. It is the only adequate type of, of on earth of divine love. God honors it by making it the imperfect image from which he would have us comprehend his own infinite benevolence and piety he instructs us to address him as our father which art in heaven he declares like as a father pitieth his children so the lord pitieth them that fear him when he would exalt the love of redemption to its most transcendent high he can find nothing on earth which comes so near it as a mother's love although this comes short of it can a woman forget her sucking child? And the quote that he's giving here is of Christ's sample prayer. It's the what we call the Lord's Prayer. And later on, just a few verses after this in Luke 11, Christ says, Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If then, though you are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in Heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So He's drawing this parallel between God's desire to give us salvation, directly in this passage, to a Father's desire to give goodness to His children, this affection that... A father has for his child. This is an extension of what Paul talks about in Hebrews five, verses twenty five through thirty-three, where he brings in the analogy of a husband and his wife and Christ and the church, where you see that the husband and in this case the father operate in some form of headship as God operates over his church and his people. And the mother actually has that additional layer to her role over the children, whereas she is the bride of Christ, but she is also the mentor and the nurturer of goodness and godliness in the world. Or at least this is what her role is supposed to be. And this extends to our children, and Dabney is drawing this connection, that it also extends to our children.
1: Well, and and it's kind of like what, what C.S. Lewis would be saying um, that right now we're just practicing. Uh, so so as fathers we are we are practicing or imitating being like the father when we father children in an appropriate manner. So so the father is the closest earthly example to um, how God the Father is, uh, and, and while we can never measure up to hit to his exact standards we uh we, we essentially show forth what a father is to the children whether good or bad and so we whenever they think of father the the father they're gonna immediately think back to their earthly father in um in a lesser form so if we are tyrannical as fathers then the children would think of God as a tyrannical father. Whereas, also on the other hand, so, so it's two ditches on each side of the road. If we are too lackadaisical, lax, and too quote unquote loving, which we all know is really not love at all, then we will think that, you know, God the Father is some kind of, um, you know, uh, pushover or he's, he's just some, you know, uh, kind uh, old
0: man in the sky.
1: Yes, a kind old man in the sky, thank you for that. in uh, which is why we get liberal denominations, by the way, is because you know I, I well, I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole, but <laughs> ha, how we set an example for our children is how they see God the Father in later years of life.
0: And I've seen this play out in people's lives where they, they have a father who isn't there, who's absent. And they see God as this deistic entity who set everything in motion, but doesn't really have a firm grasp on reality. And and as as the scriptures say, not the creation doesn't have its being in Christ. Let's say I've seen people whose father has been overbearing, who has been petty, and more often than not, they see God as a petty and tyrannical uh, God. And my experience does not validate this, but I'm seeing the evidence of this true principle working out in reality. And it's hard to avoid it once you make these connections and when you understand it. And you see people living out this this reality that they believe God is tyrannical, or they believe God is lackadaisical or you know whatever or that he's absent, or or that he's absent, whatever error their father chose. So we have big responsibility as father. We have a big responsibility as fathers to ensure that our children understand God rightly, not just through what we say, but more importantly through what we do. I, I even see this
1: with non believing parents. When 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 they're you know, when when there's an absent father or there's a tyrannical father, even in non Christian households, that affects how they see the, the, the real God and they, they don't want him to be there. Uh which is why most atheists have terrible or excuse me, atheist, agnostic, whatever have this have have typically have a bad home life or a or a bad father figure. Uh, now that isn't to say that all atheists had bad fathers but that is to say that the majority of atheists that I've had experience with and this is purely anecdotal have bad absent or just you know lackadaisical fathers um, and, and it shows out within their worldview uh, even if they even if it's they they' you know don't come from a Christian background it still shows how you know how they view God the Father because let's face it, atheists hate the christian god and this this kind of makes sense because they seem to be projecting a a father type um yeah a father archetype on the christian god which is very accurate but it's because they're projecting what they view of an earthly father upon him does that make sense
0: it does and you know in my experience we're going to go with anecdotes here uh, which anecdotes can be helpful in my experience most of the atheists that i know ...come from single mother households... ...and the father was entirely absent... ...they had no... ...no prospect of what a father is... ...or how that role should be played out in the home... ...watching that affect... ...this utter resistance... ...to any form of structure... ...or authority... ...in any way, shape, or form... ...without being too flippant about it... ...you know, we all have our daddy issues... ...we all have problems with our fathers... ...and... as men some of this stems from our desire to get out from underneath our fathers. In my case, I believe that my father was tyrannical. I believe that my father was too hard on me. Now that I'm older, I see that my father acted rightly in most cases. There's obviously everyone sins, everyone has their faults. But my father did right by me, and I've come to appreciate that, and I often tell him that when we talk now because he needs to hear that. All the times that I fought him in my life, he needs to hear this repentance that I have of fighting against him. So I I see my own rebellion has sparked out of some of what I think, some of the things that I think my father went overboard on. And now that I've sobered up some, there are still some legitimate criticisms, but at the same time, there's also some change in tone from me. There are things that I think my father was too lax on which if you had told me that you know, eight years ago I would have told you you were insane. My father's hard about everything. But now that I look back I see that well no, he wasn't hard on some things. He should have been harder on some things. And I'm implementing those criticisms in how I parent my children. So these are important things and that we need to weigh against one another sometimes how we see our fathers is not how they are on one hand. And then on the other hand, we need to rightly understand how our fathers have reflected God, the Father, in their role as our fathers. There's a bit of um, self-examination and self-awareness that we should have when talking about this. We can't be flipping about it.
1: Have you caught yourself acting like your father yet?
0: I do that quite frequently especially especially now that I have children. The more children that I have the more I act like my father. <laughs> it's unavoidable, I think.
1: Well, it um it goes into uh just how uh, you, you know effectual the influence of, you know, parents are. You know, they 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 for for good or bad, they 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 they, they get you in the molding
0: years. So in keeping with this idea of having self-awareness, Dabney goes into this comparison between a hypocritical Christian home and a pagan home. And he actually makes the case that children coming from a hypocritical Christian home are more seared against the gospel than those who are raised in a pagan home. And he says this, quote, This pagan child may have for his father a gross, sensual barbarian, and for his mother a superstitious silly lying babbler i like that he added more adjectives to the mother than the father but i i digress he may have carried he may have been carried while an infant to the idol temple and made to bow his head and cast his little handful of rice before the horrid image of siva or kali he has not yet experienced the spiritual curse to which every pretended christian home is subjected of detecting his own father and mother Whom he is to revere if he reveres anything In practicing cheats upon their God In promising sacredly what they have no purpose of performing And in giving the practical lie By their actions all week To the holiest professions they make on the Lord's Day Therein he is in a state far more accessible to truth And more hopeful than the neglected child of of nominal Christians The missionary preaching to such heathens grown up has more has a more hopeful charge than the pastor at home vainly stretching out his hands all day long to the souls seared and hardened by the commanding influences of ungodly homes over the youthful heart. And I actually see this as well when we're talking about Christians they become so seared to the repetition and to the devices and even the the Bible verses that you'll explain to them, and they'll proclaim this belief in God, but they believe that they can live a hypocritical life because that's what they saw when they grew up. So it adds this weight to what we do as fathers, that we must raise our children rightly, else they will be seared to the gospel, especially in that we proclaim Christ. So so growing up in... um in the
1: South, you know, we, we have a very nominal, um, Christian influence down here. I mean, we, we still are a Christian society, if you will, but it's still very nominal. Uh, growing up, I've seen multiple, you know, multiple ones of my friends, uh, slip away. And I I guess the only reason that I actually came back to Christ and, um, the way that I did was because I didn't see this hypocritical side in my parents. They, they, they saw, you know wholeheartedly believed in what they taught uh, g- granted it was not always right it was very you know dispensational pentecostal background but my you know my father he was for all his faults he was a good christian man um he he lived the best that he could uh but then i look at some of my my friends dads and well, well, okay. So disclaimer: there's nothing wrong. I don't see anything wrong with going to the bar or having a beer or something like that. But when you go to a church that constantly harps on teetotaling, and then your dad is, you know, out, you know, getting hammered every weekend, it kind of leaves a bad taste in your mouth. I mean, that that's the that's pretty much what Dabney was saying, or that is what Dabney was saying when he talks about the hypocritical Christian. And so I, I the only way that I could, um think of why I would come back to Christ and not my friends who have a longer lineage in this particular church than I did was because their, their parents were hypocrites. They're the ones that, that, you know, were hell raisers Monday through Saturday, but on Sunday they were, they were at church. Not only were they at church, but they were on stage at church. Um, but but yeah, I mean, Dabney hit it square on the head when he when he talked about you know hypocritical piety within the home, and um, that's that's something that you know looking. I think, granted I don't have children right now, but looking at it, that's something I've really got to work on because. Um, not so much my actions, but my mouth gets me in trouble like a lot. <laughs> so, I
0: think so. I think we're both in that in that category, brother. And I I've got to work on it around my children. My children, uh, thankfully, I've I've been very uh, I've been very consistent in how I talk in front of my children. There's a there has always been a sobering influence that my children have had on me which has only increased with reading people like Dabney and uh, many of the books that I've been reading lately actually This is the Voice Lewis, many of Lewis's books such as Abolition of Man and many of the other books that I've been reading have all been pointing me to this idea that what you say has a huge influence on your children This might seem like an obvious thing. But when it's in the moment, you don't really think about it. My wife and I were discussing this the other day as well. And there are things that my daughter does now that this this kind of frustrated conversation that she has and she got that from my wife. And so we've been working not only on her, but working on me as well. My, my conversation, I tend to be loose with my words sometimes as we're talking. I have to be much more careful with how I speak. So lately I've been ensuring that I speak life and I speak encouragement into my children. I make sure that I make eye contact with them, that we're looking at one another I make sure that I give them hugs. I tell them that I love them. I tell them that I'm proud of them. And when I'm disciplining them, instead of just saying, don't do this or do this, the specific instance why discipline is is required to begin with, I always go back to the higher principle. Why are we doing this? I'm teaching my son about sacrifice and about... Hardship and struggle and suffering. And he'll look at me and say, is this the suffering talk again? Because he hears it so much. And I'll say, yeah, it's the suffering talk again. We have to talk about this. This is important that you internalize the understanding that life is full of suffering. You're going to have to suffer. And so as men, we have an obligation to suffer righteously and rightly and justly not to take undue suffering in one sense, but to bear that which is necessary with faces set like flint. And it's hard. I mean, a six-year-old doesn't understand that. A lot of people my age don't understand that. But it's important that I remind him of that. These are things that are a consistent thing. You don't just tell him this once. The other thing that's really important is if you have some kind of this may sound trivial, but if you have some kind of theological distinctive from the church that you're going to, it's important that you explain that to your children. As what you were saying earlier, I mean, you don't see a problem with going to the bar, but if you're in a church that preaches against that categorically, you need to explain that difference with your child, and you need to show that child from the scriptures where you got your position from. Or even if it's vice versa, let's say that your, your church does not teach that, but you believe in teetotaling, I I would disagree with you. We could have that discussion if you want, but if that's your theological conviction and your church teaches otherwise, you need to explain that to your child. You need to let them know where you're coming from because all they're going to see is, well, this is what they teach at church, and you want me to listen at church, but you don't follow that. It's important to point these things out. If you don't, your child will get those mixed signals, and they'll think more that you're a hypocrite or that you're not being diligent in what you say and what you do. It may sound small, but it's not. And My oldest is six. I've already had some of this come back and bite me already. He's asked me questions, and sometimes I have a good answer for them, and sometimes I don't have a good answer for it. Sorry, that's, that's my spiel, but... No, which brings it
1: back. Yeah, I, I was hoping I could um, bring it back to what I what I had on my brain. Uh, so so as I stated earlier, I don't have children right now, uh, but I have a nephew that I have a, uh, a, a, a an enormous amount of influence over, um, to say the least. And even at a young age, like I think he's, let's see, he's two and a half or so right now, um, something like that. He's young, but even even before he was, you know, even at like uh, eighteen months old. He understood a lot more than people give him credit for. And and just, you know, me spending time with him, me, me talking to him lately, I'm just having a conversation with him. He's not, you know, answering back because he doesn't know words yet, but he understands much of what I'm saying. And he even sees, you know, whenever, whenever, if I was to do something that's out of, out of character, I guess you would say, or hypocritical, he would remember that. And I know he would because he's a smart kid. Uh but, but yeah, no, 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 you're totally right. We, we need to, we need to be guarded on what we, what we actually do um, and say, because, and especially what we do, because children watch what we do constantly. Like there, there's been many times that I would catch, you know, either my, my nephew or my nieces or something like that, just watching what I do because I'm the adult in the room and then they'll know whether or not, you know, what I'm doing is good or bad. Or whether or not I'm being a hypocrite. In, um, in
0: some ways, they're going to look more to what you do than what you say. Yes. Uh, and that, and this is why I bring up that it's very important that you explain any kind of discordance that you have with your actions and what your church teaches, because they're going to pick up. They're going to pick up that you some you do something different. And there's a lot of children that won't mention it because they don't think enough about it at the time. You know, children are very intelligent. They pick up things that even they don't realize they're picking up. It's important that you explain that, that discord because the child picks up things. They understand things intuitively that you don't have to explain to them. But they don't understand sometimes what they're picking up, and they may not think to ask the question. So it's very important that you explain these things without them having to ask.
1: Uh, which brings uh, you know to an anecdote that Dabney puts in, uh, puts in his writing. He, uh, he, he was talking about an adult convert, uh, a man of very high means, inherited his wealth, uh, successful at business, uh, never really had a love for God or, or anything to do with the spiritual things. Uh, but one day he just miraculously started to have an interest in the divine things. Um, he was sitting in church, learning it like a child at the feet of Christ. Um, and, and even his, his entire walk changed. He, he became more philanthropist. He started, you know, living the good Christian life, you know, started, started the long walk of sanctification. And, um, the, the, the pastor just kind of chalked it up to, oh, well, maybe it was one of my sermons or something like that. But, um, it come to find out that you know when the pastor sat down and actually prodded at him it was it was his mother his mother had this great influence on him but no one in the church because okay so again, again we're we're talking about a small town in virginia so pretty much everyone knew everybody but nobody knew his mother but apparently she used to attend that said same church um so, so no one had heard for, you know, heard of her because she passed away a, you know, a good while back. Uh, I think it was, I think Dabney says only one elder knew her. Uh, but she died whenever he was six. But she lived a godly life. You know, even even at the age of six, she was teaching him godly things. And these, these seeds were planted down deep within. And they were just waiting to be water to come up. And so while it took him you know, to middle of his life, uh, to uh for these seeds to come up they did actually come up and it was because of six years of his mother's influence just six years and then he had his entire life ahead of him so so just think of how much influence this this mother had on this man and just you know in his formative years uh his his very you know pliable you know uh earlier in the sermon i, I think i don't know if we got to it but uh dabney talks of you know these formative years being like being like soft clay in the hands of a potter and and just the smallest bit of pressure actually you know expands this you know clay and like forms it into what it's going to be when it gets hardened and same with the parents when you mold it to something and in its soft and early stages it's there you know there's not much going back from that you know what what you mold is pretty much there to stay um, Obviously, you know, we, you know, Dabney goes into the 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 evangelism and and such like that. But a lot of it is means that God uses in these formative years um, to to actually, you know, mold the person and and used as means for um, for a person's salvation.
0: So the example that he gives just a little bit before this, in addition to the clay, is this, and I'm going to quote him real quick. To this corresponds the experience of pastors. When they have a hardened adult or aged sinner Bow apparently to the force of the preached gospel from their mouths They are apt to find, if they inquire faithfully That this hardened subject had not always been hard That his youth had been spent, at, in part at least Under some under the blessed influence of home piety And that the seeds of good, then sown Long buried beneath the clods Have at last borne their fruit But for those early planted seeds, the latter the latter sowing of the pulpit would have fallen upon the road roadway and been caught up by Satan. His example here actually goes back to the parable of the four soils, which is in Matthew 13, where Christ gives this analogy of several different kinds of soil, and one of them being one of them being a roadway, which was packed and hard and couldn't grow anything and the ravens came in and ate everything up. And he's, he's actually tying that parable to parental guidance, such as to say the condition of your heart, i.e. the soil, is dependent on how you were raised as a child. Now, I've always seen this parable as talking about hearts and how the heart must be tilled, let's say, to use the example. Before you be receptive to the gospel, and I still think this applies, but the added element of the kind of heart that you have, being generated by your upbringing, by your parentage—I had never made that connection before. That's a very interesting connection to make.
1: Okay, so so I you know I've kind of made an observation, or or more of a question, I guess you could say. But uh, the blessed influence of home piety that that Dabney talks about. Uh, do you think that could also extend to just a, uh, a nominally Christian society? Now, now Dabney talked about um, a nominally Christian family and a hypocritical Christian family, but, I mean, I would draw a distinction between the family and the society, whereas a, uh, a nominally Christian family might harden – well, Dabney argues hardens the heart. But what about a nominally Christian or a nominally morally Christian society would that uh, entail that oh uh, it, it could potentially soften the sinner's heart or make him more receptive to the gospel since there's literally Christianity everywhere I'm not saying nominal Christianity is good because I don't think it is but would it be a means that God could you I mean obviously it could be a means but would it be a normal means that God would use to soften a sinner's heart to bring him to Christianity?
0: Well, I think it might have much the same effect as the nominal Christian household would have. I think the way that Dabney is defining nominal Christian is that that family which professes the law of God but denies the spirit of God. So they, they talk a lot about being a Christian and following Christian principles, but they don't actually do it. So if you have a society that acts like that, I think it would be an even greater trap and I think that's actually part of what we're fighting in the states right now especially in some areas of the south I would say is everybody's a Christian they've been baptized because that's the that's the meme that you just have to get baptized and you're right you know walk the aisle of the first baptist church correct and that that meme is what saves them it's not actual faith in Christ And as long as them and the other five buddies that they talk to have all walked the aisle, they're all Christians in their eyes. And you can't tell them otherwise. And you can't tell them otherwise. I've tried to witness to people because they weren't saved, and you could see that they weren't saved in the life that they live. Talking to them was impossible because they believed that they were right with God because they went down the aisle and they got dunked. And they'll actually talk about it like that. Oh, I've been dunked. Don't worry about it. This flippancy that they have with the sacraments.
1: Yeah, I, I experienced that with a guy. He, he was talking about that he was a Baptist, but he didn't believe in God. Well, right. Well, you're not a Baptist then,
0: homie. <laughs> yeah, no, you're definitely not. <laughs> I think the, the effect would actually be amplified. And it gives n- unbelievers, because it, in, my, in my understanding of history, these nominally Christian in societies become secular as opposed to being Christian the only way for the society to really be beneficial in this sense is for the society to be overtly Christian, which is, frankly, what you and I are trying to do here is to have the men of the South transform their own own society to be Christian and to follow Christian principles and to think about things in the categories that Christ has laid out for us instead of just going off of whatever whatever descendant of Enlightenment thought they're listening to today is. Or
1: TBN preacher.
0: Or TBN preacher. Cre- or or what their granny got from TBM and passed down to them. Yeah. Now, we talk about this, and we want to call the men of the South to repentance in this way. And there's a heavy responsibility that God has given us. But on the other hand of this, we're fully capable of doing this. God has not just told us to go do something he's given us every means to actually accomplish what he's told us to do as Christians we have everything that we need and Dabney gives this encouragement in his sermon as well here is the parent's responsibility and here also is the encouragement our God is a faithful and a righteous God He has not laid this heavy and fearful burden on our shoulders without the promise help to bear it. His covenant still stands to be a a God for his people and their seed. Faithful effort and holy example shall be rewarded and that word of the holy writ will ever be found as much a divine promise as it is a deduction of experience that if we train up our children in the way they should go when they are old, they shall not depart from it. By the very reason which makes parental neglect so blighting to the souls of children, parental teaching will prove an efficient help. And that God, who, in paradise, pronounced paternity a blessing before Satan the murderer had infused the curse of original sin into the stream of humanity, has promised through Christ the woman's seed still to use this holy relation for its primeval end of raising up sons unto glory. God's given us what we need. He's given us the ability to carry out this. It's just our duty to do this.
1: And then it's his job to see it through.
0: It's his job um, to see it through. We're not because... responsible for bringing these children to Christ in the sense that we can't change their hearts. But we are responsible to bringing them to Christ in the sense that we should give them proper teaching and a proper grounding on how to understand reality in the categories that God has given us.
1: I think you, you made a very good point there. Uh, it's our responsibility to bring them to Christ. It's not our job to make them better. Yeah, we are to teach them. We are to disciple them. We are to, you know, as it says, we are to train them in the way that it is to go. But it's not our job to make them little moral robots. Um our job is to bring them to Christ and then disciple them as if they are Christ. Um uh, so so yes, there's gonna be some things that, you know, don't do this, don't do that, but that's not our primary job. Our primary job is to bring them to Christ. And and you know that that's kind of the difference I see between between actual Christianity and liberal Christianity is liberal Christianity tries to you know, make, um, not, not liberal as in today's mainlines, because they're just way off wackadoodle, but I'm talking about the, um...
0: Would you would you consider uh, liberal to be any child of the Enlightenment?
1: I mean, I guess. Um, I mean, it's more than just Enlightenment, it's, it's, uh, it's the whole, you know, it, let's see, I don't know if I really want to throw shade at the Puritans right now, but it really is a lot of Puritanical thoughts. I mean, no, 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 okay, so let me qualify. I believe that the Puritans were our brothers in Christ, however, and they got a lot right, but I think they got a lot wrong. I think they tried behavior modification a little bit too much rather than pointing to Christ. Now, there's plenty of Puritans that did point to Christ, but that wasn't the majority. The majority tried behavioral modifications for their society, and that's why uh, we have the, uh, the social justice areas within the, uh, the mainline Presbyterian churches. It comes from this trend of thought, which I guess could come from the Enlightenment. I haven't traced it back to the Enlightenment. But um, our, you know, all this to say is, is our job is to point them to Christ, not behavioral modifications. Yes, behavioral modifications will come, but that is not the primary goal. Our primary goal is not to make little moral beings. Our primary goal is to, is to disciple them into Christ. It's all about Christ. It's not about their behavior. It's all about Christ. Sorry about that tangent, but I, I, think, that's, uh, I think that's a distinction that, that, that is very important and that we as Southerners need to make. Well, we as Christians need to make.
0: I'll give a little bit of qualification to your comment. I mean, we're supposed to teach our children how to act. We're supposed to teach them virtue and how to act morally. But I think the point that you're getting at is that we're supposed to point them to the spirit of the law. Not just have this moralistic standard for them. Because it's not about in a very real sense it's not about the law. The law is just a schoolmaster. The real point is to teach them to go to Christ. As a uh, as, as Reformed Baptist, you and I we would point to Jeremiah 31. We're supposed to tell them that they need a new heart, and that they need to love God. And it is the point where they have had full faith in Christ, and they have they have professed Christ as their Savior, and they have truly believed in their heart. It's at that point where, you know, as the passage says, they won't have to be taught to know God, because they will know God if they're the least or the greatest of gods they will know god because he will write his love on their hearts that knowledge is that intimate knowledge of salvation in Jeremiah 31 you you correct me if you think that i'm incorrect but i i, I think that's more what you're saying i'm trying to restate no, no, what I, you're saying
1: no 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 i think i think what you said yeah it it works perfectly and yeah, that, that's basically what I was trying to get. at. I'm not saying that we shouldn't do behavioral modifications, but that's not the point. Like that, that's right. not the main goal. And uh, yeah, so so that qualification was was very good. So 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 it brings us to to Dabney's closing remarks. Um, so so just imagine a sermon is basically a huge argument, and then he's wrapping up it all and putting in a nice little bow on it. And he gives two inferences within the closing of the sermon. And the first is that you know politics, war, literature, money making—they're all subordinate in the parent's life to to raising up all, to raising up godly offspring. This is the primary goal of the parent: is to is to raise up new new Christians, basically, or at least point them in the right direction. It's to it's to carry on this lineage of Chris of Christians, raising up boys to be men to be husbands, raising up girls to be women to be to be wives, and to and to spread Christianity through multiplication throughout the earth. I think we miss. I think we you know especially as Baptists we, we get so. I know this is very general and and it's you know gonna gonna be you know me looking at Baptists. I'm a Baptist, but it's okay. Uh, we we often look at the growing of the kingdom as addition via conversion uh especially in the more Armenian Baptist churches versus what Dabney's arguing here that is that we multiply Christians by making more Christians. I think that's intent, you know, that that that's the way that God has it is because he's he deals with multiplication is that he wants us to be fruitful and multiply and to spread Christians throughout all the earth. Yes. He wants converts, but more than that, he wants the multiplication of these little immortal beings being raised under the, uh, the, the auspices of, of uh, Christian care, under Christian parents, and that to we get successfully better, every generation ought to be better. Like, we should be better than our parents, and then our children should be better than us because the master always seeks for the student to outdo him.
0: So there... There's actually a quote which relates to infant baptism, and I I think this would be the area where you and I differ from Dabney, but he, he was also very gracious in this disagreement. He says, "...since the very foundation of all parental fidelity to children's souls is to be laid in the conscientious, solemn, and hearty adoption of the very duties and promises which God seals in the covenant of infant baptism." It is pleasing to think that many Christians who refuse the sacrament do with happy inconsistency embrace the duties and seek the blessings. But God gives all his people the truths and promises along with the edifying seal. Let us hold fast to both. This is the area I think we would disagree with not with that first part but we would disagree with infant baptism here. So to qualify this statement before I say anything else it is not that I'm accusing Presbyterians of saying that this saves them, because they they don't believe in baptismal regeneration, at least not most of them. However, this would be the point of contention that I have with them as a Baptist, is infant baptism. And this is where I would draw the line where he calls this a happy inconsistency, and again, this is a very gracious comment from him, but I I just thought it worth mentioning that this is a distinction between how Dabney is viewing this and how we are viewing this. And a little bit of this sacramental language comes out in one of the previous quotes. One of the previous quotes that I brought up about parental responsibility was you know, him giving a nod towards infant baptism. And I'm sure that some people, their ears perked up, and they're asking me how I can quote that with such firmness, let's say, and still be a Baptist. And I can say that I can quote Dabney with any level of firmness while still disagreeing with some of what he's saying, number one, but on the second part of this, I absolutely agree with Dabney on all of, all of his practical wisdom that he's giving here. And the outline of how a parent should be treating their children is absolutely biblical. The only point of disagreement that I would have would be the infant baptism element,
1: right? But he he does make it very hard not to be a Presbyterian right now, though.
0: I, so I I think you and I talked about this, and uh, and it's a little more compelling to you than it is to me. I I understand where he's coming from, and I and I actually do appreciate the sentiment. I don't I don't want to say that my heart's hard to it, but I'm. I will I will gladly be called an autist for this, but I I just can't get past Jeremiah thirty one and Hebrews eight. Like that's it, it. Until I hear something that pricks my heart that refutes my understanding of those two, I'm I'm not gonna be able to I'm not gonna be able to get away away from a Credo Baptist position.
1: And and as we probably shouldn't, right? I mean, obviously, this podcast is not you know where we're going to settle the great debate between infant baptism and and uh, and credo, but you know we can dang sure try. Well, John Macarthur,
0: <laughs> John Macarthur settled it when he he debated R.C. Sproul. I kid, I kid. But
1: well, I don't think any any either one of those won that debate. So there's that.
0: <laughs> I just had to throw it in there a little bit of banter, but. I I really wanna hear all the Presbyterians like get exasperated at the issue. <laughs> like that's literally the only reason why I put John MacArthur in there. Because they get so mad at MacArthur. And he's a dispy, which makes it even better. Like it's a hundred percent a troll.
1: No, yeah, well we all have uh we all have our cro our, our burdens to bear. Dabney's yeah. was Pato Baptism and J Max's dispensationalism.
0: Lord bless him. I hope God uh, I hope God rescues him from dispy. <laughs> and and become post mill. Amen, brother. So I think this, that one last little point. Um, I think a good a good way to wrap this up, if if we've commented on everything you want to, Travis, is a quote yeah. that I think is really important. That actually gives us a little bit of a, a little bit of a teaser to what we'll be getting into on our next episode. This is this comes from the first paragraph in his conclusion. But I think it's actually a better conclusion than the one that he has. Seeing the parental relationship is what the scripture describes it. And seeing Satan has perverted it since the fall for the diffusion and multiplication of depravity and eternal death. The education of children for God is the most important business done on earth. To it, all politics, all war, all literature, all money-making ought to be subordinated. And every parent especially ought to feel, every hour of the day, that, next to making his own calling and election sure, this is the end for which he is kept alive by God. This is his task on earth. On the right training of the generation now arising, turns not only the individual salvation of each member in it, Not only the religious hope of the age which is approaching, but the fate of all future generations in a large degree. Train up him who is now a boy in Christ, and you not only sanctify that soul, but you set on foot the best earthly agencies to redeem the whole broadening stream of human beings who shall proceed from him, down to the time when men cease to marry and give in marriage. Until then, the work of education is never ending. Hey y'all, thanks for listening in on our podcast. If you like what you hear, please share and comment wherever you're listening to it. And check out our Gab page at Dixie Polis Podcast. If you want to contact us, please send an email to DixiePolis at ProtonMail.com or send us a message on Gab. If you like the music we're playing, hang out a little while and let the song finish. It's Wayfaring Stranger by Southern Raised and you can listen to them on YouTube or go to the website at SouthernRaisedBlueGrass.com God bless y'all. I know dark clouds will gather round me I know my way is rough and steep